It is a joy to be able to gather together. Um, as Larry said, I'm Devin Coughlin. If you're a guest with us, I serve as one of the pastors here, along with Larry. And uh, what a joy it is to gather together and be, be reminded of who God is and what He's done through song, through prayer and fellowship. Um, it is, it's, a, it's a joy. If you can open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus is towards the end of the New Testament. If you get to uh, Hebrews or Revelation or John or Peter, you've gone too far going back. And uh, if you're in Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians, you need to go a little bit further. Titus chapter 3. And uh, if you would, uh, let's actually stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Whenever we read God's Word, God is speaking to us. There's nothing that I'm going to say that's more important than what God has said here in His Word. So just out of of reverence for God's Word, to be reminded of of the uh, seriousness and and the um, responsibility that we have in receiving this revelation, let's stand together. Hear the Word of the Lord from Titus 3. I'm going to read to verse 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. You can have your seats. Bow your heads and pray. Pray once again with me. Now, Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. And thank you for the uh, privilege and sobering responsibility that it is to bring your word to these dear people. And this dear church, I pray that your word would, would come alive here and, and be active among us. Thank you that it will be. And uh, give me wisdom and, uh, and grace as I preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A little over three and a half years ago, Christine and I and our four kids, we made the trek through the bluegrass of Kentucky and over the mountains of West Virginia and came here home to Clarksburg, Maryland. Uh, We came because it seemed that God was calling us to a particular place to serve and to grow. And even more than a place, God was calling us to a particular people, you. Some of you we knew, some of you we didn't, and some of you that aren't even here we don't even yet know, Uh, but God called us here. You see, in 2013, so about six years ago, I had left, actually just over six years ago, I left the business world and embarked on a journey that brought me here by way of Louisville, Kentucky. And I came here to give myself to serving as a pastor, to serving this church, to serve these people. But the reality was, as you know, I'd never done this before. I'd never been a pastor. I'd never been tasked with shepherding God's people, never borne the weight of having to labor as one who will have to give an account for the souls of God's children. And this is a sobering, serious task. Now, one of the reasons that we felt God was leading us here and brought us here was because I wouldn't be on my own. 
and had the, uh, in Larry, I had someone to learn from. God had provided me someone to labor with who has more years of experience in pastoral ministry than I have years of life. And that is a gift. He, and he's also had more surgeries than I have fingers and toes. But that's, that's another story. That comes with age, I guess. Uh, this has been a huge gift to me as a young and learning pastor. And as grateful as I am for Larry, I'm even more grateful for what God has given us in his word particularly in this letter that we're looking at together today. Now to refresh your memory, we've been working our way through this letter called Titus. Titus was a man that the Apostle Paul has left on the island of Crete. Now Crete was this island off the coast of Greece. It had a notorious reputation. And we read in in chapter 1, verse 12, how it was filled. The people of Crete were gluttons, lazy gluttons and liars and evil beasts. They did not have a good reputation. It was filled with people looking out for number one. People that were trying to live their best, night, best life now at the expense of everyone else. People trying to live out the Cretan dream. But the gospel had come to Crete. And the gospel started churches. And the, and the churches began to grow. And on this island, various churches, they were, they were springing up little outposts of light in the midst of a land of darkness. But the darkness of the surrounding culture, it threatened these churches. You see, the churches, they were in danger of looking just like the Cretan culture. So Paul has left Titus in Crete to set these churches in order, to set them straight. And Paul doesn't just leave Titus behind and say, all right, good luck, Titus. He leaves him this letter. He gives him this letter. He's writing this letter to Titus, these three chapters, that give him the priorities for his ministry. Titus, this is what you're to do in Crete. And that's what we've seen as we've made our way through it. We saw in Titus chapter 1 how how Paul tasks Titus with appointing elders. Appoint those who can, elders, pastors, those who can protect the church and proclaim the gospel. In Titus 2, we see Paul charge Titus to equip the Cretan Christians to structure their, order their households rightly. Structure their households rightly. The households of, of Crete, Christian households of Crete, should be marked by Uh, discipleship, encouragement toward godliness that the entire community takes part in, young and old. And last week we saw the big why for living a godly life, why all this stuff matters. It's because of God's abundant grace. It's because God's grace has appeared that we are to live godly lives in the present age. Because God gave himself up for us, because he rescued and redeemed us, we should live lives that honor him. And Paul concludes this chapter with verse 15. He tells Titus this, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul is saying this, this is the message. This is the truth that God has tasked you with. So stand up and proclaim it. This is your job. This is what you're called to because the gospel changes lives. Now for me as a younger pastor, the command to Titus is a clarifying call. There are lots of things in ministry, in the church, that can seem, lots of things that that want to say ministry in the church should be about. Lots of other things. Most of them are good things. There's a lot of good things that ministry could be about. There are different causes and activities, different programs and events. There are different conversations going on and different controversies. They're all trying to say, talk about this, talk about this. And as a pastor, you're not wondering, I'm not wondering ridiculous things like, I mean, maybe as a mission strategy, we should have a night of theft and robbery. Like, that's not a category. 
But I am wondering, what should we give our resources to? What should we give our time and our money to as a church? Or, when something's going on in the broader culture, should we talk about this? What, how should we address this? When there's a lot of good things that are competing for attention, it's, it's complex. Uh, it, it, things get hazy. Your thinking gets hazy. A fog descends on your brain, obscuring the direction, the way you should go. And in these moments, God's Word... God's word acts like a compass pointing to true, north, to true north, saying this is the way forward. This is what you are called to do. Put another way, God's word is like that first time someone puts on glasses. All of a sudden, all those blurry images become clear, and you say, oh yeah, that's where I should go. These words are meant to do just that for me and for us this morning. Because even though Paul is addressing Titus here in the pastor's task, he's speaking to all those gathered in the church. And God has much to say to us this morning. God has a lot to say to us this morning. And uh, just a disclaimer before I even jump in, I don't even know if I'm going to get through what I have prepared to get through this morning. Uh, but maybe I will, maybe I won't. If I just stop abruptly, it's because I, I just couldn't get through it all. We'll see. We'll finish next week. Larry would appreciate that. So let us look together at what God has for us in His Word. And uh, just a heads up, if you're taking notes, I'm not going to give you headers for each section of the sermon this morning. Uh, we're just going to work through the text phrase by phrase. So, I mean, if you want headers, you can just use, like, verse 1 as your first header. So I'm going to have eight headers. So that's where we're going. Paul begins in chapter 3 with this series of reminders. He says, Titus, tell the people in the church to remember these things. Paul's saying that this is going to be the stuff that God's people already know, they're being reminded, but you need to remind them because they're prone to forget. They're prone to be distracted. They're prone to move on too quickly. So remind them of these things. Remind them. Now, before I actually jump into the text, before we go any further, I want to say that this is, has been one of the most striking things about pastoral ministry to me. My job is a job of reminding that's Larry and my, that's what we're tasked with. We are tasked with helping people remember stuff they already know. And this isn't particularly flattering. Uh, we're just here to tell you what you already know. But that's what we're here to do. Uh, I'm not here this morning to declare new things or novel things that I've come up with. I'm not here to entertain or do anything else. I'm here to proclaim and declare what you already know. Remind them. This is our job as your pastors. And may we, by God's grace, just keep on reminding you. So the first thing Paul tells Titus to remind the Cretan Christians to do is to, see right there in verse 1, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He's saying that as Christians, we must live as those who willingly submit to those in authority over us. We should obey them. We should contribute to the common good. Now Paul recognizes that if the people of God fail to obey governing authorities, then the gospel won't be credible. The gospel is going to be undermined. If, if they're characterized by, as being a rebellious people. Now, just in case we think that Paul had no idea what we have to deal with, he's giving us this command in the context of personal persecution. He's also giving this command in the context of being jailed for preaching the gospel. This is a time when Caesars ruled. This was a time when people were sent to die in Colosseums. We don't know the half of it when it comes to how seemingly unjust governing authorities may or may not be. God's call to us then and today is to be exemplary as we submit to people like government officials and police officers. Now in Romans 13, Paul unpacks the reality that all authority derives from God. This is his big point there, which would inform his thinking here. The people who preside in governments throughout the world, those who occupy thrones throughout history, 
They don't do so by accident or by chance, but by God's determination. If we fight the authority that God has put in place, then we are picking a fight with God. Now, the Bible does have a category for going against earthly authorities in order to uphold God's will. You can think of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus, how they didn't throw the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile. Or you can think of Moses' defiance of Pharaoh and leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Or you can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they would not bow down to the king. Or you think of Daniel's disobedience when he continued to pray. Paul himself, through his death, he showed that when governing authorities oppose God, we must obey God and not these authorities. So the Bible does have this category. But all of this does not mean we should be in opposition to authority. Only when authority puts us in opposition to God is when we oppose that authority. Otherwise, we are to be submissive to authority. Exemplary subjects, as Titus is to remind the church. Because otherwise, like I said, we are undermining the gospel. When I was mm, 16, 17, um, this was not really a category that I had. Uh, The Lord saved me around 15, 16, I got my license shortly thereafter, and with the, within the first year and a half, I believe, of having my license, I had my license suspended once for 30 days, another time for six months. You could say that I was a reckless driver, and uh, I, I don't wear that badge proudly in any way. I was an idiot, and not, not, uh, definitely more than once or twice, I would cut somebody off or speed by somebody or do whatever, and then be turning into a church parking lot as that person goes by. Or that person even pulls in behind me because they're going to the same place that I'm going. And the, the effect that that had on my gospel witness was detrimental. And this is what we do by rejecting the authorities that God has put in place. So, so we should be exemplary subjects. Next, in verse 2, Paul tells Titus to remind the church of what should characterize our relationships. He says this in verse 2. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The duty that we are reminded of isn't just a duty to superiors, those in authority, those above us. It's to everyone else, from the greatest to the least. The first phrase is to speak evil of no one. This has to do with how we can use our words maliciously. We can often speak in such a way that it tears other people down rather than builds them up. Those who have received the generous grace of God should talk in such a way that gives grace to those who hear. He then says that we are to avoid quarreling. So speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. Now, if there was a reminder for our day, more generally, this is one that's needed. One we always need to be reminded of. Avoid quarreling. Paul is saying, don't be contentious. Don't be a brawler and a fighter. If your brother or sister says something that you disagree with, don't say, I didn't say that. We are to be gentle. We are to avoid quarreling. We are to be quick to defer to others, to show courtesy to all people. Now, this all sounds like pretty common sense stuff, but we need these reminders. We need to be reminded of these things again and again. Now, a funny thing happened this past, as an illustration of why we need to be reminded of these things. This is what happened to me on Friday morning. I'm, I've been studying this text all week, and, and uh, Titus three, uh, in the morning on Friday morning, I'd been already s- studying this verse, Titus 3.2. And that phrase, show perfect courtesy toward all people, really was just jumping out at me. And uh, it's, it's such a high bar, and uh, wanted to bring it to the kids at breakfast and just talk, talk about, this is what God's called us to, to be kind to one another, everyone all the time. 
Show perfect courtesy toward all people. So, I mean, these, I've got these grand visions for imparting this wisdom to my kids. And so we're sitting down at the table, and uh, as I start to say, like, hey, so I've been studying this week in Titus, I get interrupted. And Christine is correcting one of the kids. And I'm not going to give it away, but they, their name started with a K. <laughs> if you don't know, all my kids' names start with a K. So, the, uh, so she's correcting kid. And so, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, like, really, Christine? Like, I'm here trying to lead our family, share these profound insights from God's Word about showing kindness to others, and you're just going to interrupt me? Like, for real? So I'm, I'm just kind of incredulous. I let her finish correcting this child. And then Christine asked me, weren't you going to say something? Were you trying to say something? I'm like, no, no, I, don't worry about it. And I'm thinking, like, it's not like you care anyway. Like, so here I am. I'm wanting to talk about showing courtesy toward all people, this is what's at the forefront of my mind. And I can't even show courtesy to my wife. This is, this is why we need this reminder. Yeah. I need this reminder. We need this reminder. This stuff is nipping at our heels all the time. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. I think there's another area we need these reminders as well. And that's in what we type. In our electronic communication. Particularly online. This call to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's not just about what we say and do. It's also about what we type. Maybe it's in a text message or an email. You just add that little bit of information about that other person, that kind of brings them down a couple notches. Or maybe it's on social media, like throwing shade, it's where it's at. People do that all the time. Strong opinions, hot takes, they get likes and attention. Social media profits off this stuff. And we need to remember that when we unlock our phone or open up our email or check whatever app you have on your phone, we're stepping onto a battlefield. One in which our flesh and the devil, they want us to speak evil of others. They want us to embrace quarreling. They want us to stir the pot. They want us to enter into the fray. But God calls us to something else. Speak evil of no one. Be peaceable. Be considerate. Be kind in everything you do. One commentator sums up these two verses by saying, he says, Remind the people to respect the government and be law-abiding, always ready to lend a helping hand. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. Big-hearted and courteous. No insults, no fights. Helpful, law-abiding. Now, I'm grateful to God that this is what marks Grace Church. This is what I've experienced being here, and it is the grace of God. May it continue to be so. May we be a community that reflects the generous grace of God through how we relate to authorities and how we relate to one another. Amen? Amen. Next, Paul goes to the reason for these reminders. He's, he's given us these reminders, and now he's, he can't get away from why. This is why we must live this way. This is why our lives are to be marked by kindness to everyone all the time. This is why we're to be submitted to governing authorities. And that word for at the beginning of verse 3, for, tells us that he's going to give us these reasons right here. Now he starts out in verse 3 for rooting our kindness and our obedience by remembering who we were. Remembering who we were. He says, for we ourselves... Now stop there before we go further. Paul's not pointing the finger at others and saying, this is who you were. He's not pointing the finger to Titus and saying, this is who you were. He's saying, this is where we were. He's included in this. His words are all-encompassing, meant to include all of humanity. The apostle, the pastor, the church member, this is all of humankind. This is who we were. We either were this or we are this apart from Christ. 
Now, before we go through this list, I want to provide one disclaimer. The picture Paul paints of humanity is ugly and it's offensive. It's uncomfortable. It seems unkind. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't feel like you're being singled out here. Don't think everyone's looking at you. What Paul is saying, what God is saying, is that we are all, we're all leveled by the reality of who we are in our sin. No one stacks up better and is more fit to be God's child than another. There are not holy people over here that God chooses to love and unholy people over here who God rejects. For example, one way this fleshes itself out in the church is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We just did this last week. We make it clear that it's, this meal is not for everyone. Only for those who have repented of their sins, who have been born again. It's not for the people who have it together. They can participate and the other people can't. It's not, not any of that. As you will see, none of us have it together. So we are participating in something like the Lord's Supper, not because of what we do, what we have done, but because of what God has done. It's what we were singing about earlier this morning. One commentator, Brian Chapel, he says it this way. He says, The plain message is that no one is distinguished by superior character or accomplishments apart from God's work. We have been leveled, made common kin by a common past. We're common kin by a common past. Every believer is a member of the union of the once despised. Apart from the work of God, we were all hopeless. Neither apostle, nor people, nor preacher can claim his position by virtue of his personal qualities. Now this morning, as we go through this verse in particular, I'm, I want to hold the mirror of God's word up to our faces. So we see the hopelessness of our plight outside of Jesus. What we see, it should disturb us. It should move us. And I'm going to ask you to flip back through the pages of your life as I'm talking. Look hard at who you once were. And don't skip over those chapters too quickly. Don't let that person you once were become a stranger to you. So Paul writes this in verse 3. He says, Remember that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were foolish. I was foolish. Being wise in our own eyes, we thought we knew the way to go. We thought we knew better than God. We lacked wisdom and reason. We chose darkness over light. We chose self over others. We held on to sin despite its devastating effects. We were foolish. We were also disobedient, meaning we rejected the very commands of God. We all lived as little gods following our own rules. We were like pharaohs, little pharaohs saying, who is the Lord that we should obey his voice? We lived as if we had control as if we were sovereign. We resisted God and the gospel with everything in us. You ever think about how many times you were called to repentance through the gospel prior to placing your faith in Jesus? I grew up a pastor's son. I heard the gospel proclaimed at least every week, most of the times, several times a week, for 15 years that I rejected it. I rejected it again and again and again and again and again. I was disobedient. We were disobedient. Not only were we foolish and disobedient, Paul says next, we were, we were led astray. This is a word, another word for deceived. We were deceived. We followed the path of destruction rather than the path of life. We believed the lie that living for what we want would bring us joy. We lived as if happiness could be found where it never existed. Not only did we reject God's commands as if they should be obeyed, we were blind to the fact that we were walking as fools. We didn't even know it. We were deceived. But our evil is not just in what we thought. Our evil was in what we pursued. 
We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, is what Paul says next. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Larry reminded us a couple weeks ago how we either fall into one of two categories. We are either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. We thought that we were in control, that we were pursuing that which was going to satisfy us, that which would make us happy. But the reality was that these things, these other things, they had control of us. We are born slaves. And we continue as slaves until someone sets us free. Our former evil evil penetrated our minds and our pursuits and also our hearts. Paul highlights the evil of our hearts. He says, We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. I think back to who I was before God saved me. And I hated a lot of people. And I know a lot of people hated me. Because I was full of malice and envy. We were angry at those who wronged us. We were envious of those who had more than us. One British pastor friend of mine, Tim Chester, he says this. He defines malice and envy this way. He says, malice is wishing bad things would happen to people. Envy is wishing good things had not happened to people. Malice and envy. Malice and envy, they destroy those around us. Hatred and anger color our interactions and relationships. And if you don't believe me, just spend 10 minutes online. Something like envy has been around since the beginning of sin. When you think back to the garden when Adam and Eve, they were in the garden, they eat of the fruit because they want to be like God. They're envious of God. Later, their son Cain kills Abel because Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't. He's envious. Envy is all over the pages of Scripture. But it's also distinctly present today. Now, in many ways, individual social media accounts, they act like this highlight reel of people. It's like... Look at my life. Look at how great the meals that I eat are, the places that I go are, my friends are, my family is, my house is. All these things. This highlight reel that plays out on social media. It's especially true for young people. Our phones and our screens, they're like these little envy-generating machines. They thrive and profit off of our desire to either want what others have or see that we're glad that we don't have it. We're always comparing ourselves. We have to recognize that this picture of who we were that Paul paints, it includes us all. Even if we don't necessarily feel that way, even if we don't identify with some of these examples, sin takes different forms in all our lives, but it's still in all of us. You can't get clean water out of a dirty well. If our hearts and our motives are evil, it touches everything we do. The prophet says it this way in Isaiah 64, 6. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the good things we do, the seemingly righteous acts that we do, they're filthy rags before God. Now if you're listening to this sermon and you haven't placed your trust in Christ, if you haven't repented of your sin and looked to Jesus for salvation, I really do plead with you. Plead with you that you see what you are now. See where you are now on your own apart from God and cry out to Jesus to save you. We ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another, hated by others and hating one another. Now this is hard truth. It's ugly truth. This is who we are apart from God. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes us as dead in our sins, lifeless, without hope, lost, deceived, disobedient, slaves to sin, destroying ourselves and others with hatred and anger. Now, like, why am I taking so long on this point? Why, am I, why does Paul belabor it? 
Why does he stack up all these descriptions of who we once were? Well, we've got to recognize that our problem is far bigger than we can comprehend. We are far worse off than we think. But Jesus is a far greater Savior than we can imagine. Our sins, though they are many, His mercy is more. If we don't plumb the depths of our depravity, if we don't grasp the sinfulness of our sin, our plight outside of Christ, then we will never soar on the height of God's love. We'll never truly appreciate the good news of what God has done. It's the ugliness and heartbreak of verse 3 that makes what comes next so amazing. So now to the good news. That was the bad news part. Here's the good news part. Keeping who we were in mind, let's not forget who we were, despite our sinful history, despite our wayward path, our folly and blindness and perverse passions, look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Salvation comes not because of anything we do, but because of who God is. Not because of what's in our hearts, but because of what is in God's heart. Goodness. Loving kindness. Y'all, we were walking in darkness. In our sin as those lost and blind. But God, our Savior, appeared. I love in Isaiah 9-2, it says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Brothers and sisters, God, our Savior, He has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. When we were dead in our sin... God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. John describes Jesus is coming this way in John 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was born in the likeness of men. He was born of a virgin. He was born to bring light and life, joy and peace. He was born to save us. Outside of Christ, we were dead in our sin. Our futures were marked by condemnation and judgment and death, hopelessness, lost and foolish, deceived and enslaved, powerless and helpless, but He saved us. Charles Wesley said it this way, and hark the herald angels sing the Christmas hymn that we'll sing and not even think about what's being said. He says, mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This is what Jesus Christ has done in His coming. The God who cannot be seen has spoken to us and has been seen through His Son. He has revealed His goodness and His kindness in Jesus. He appeared. He saved us. One commentator writes, he says, We were rescued from a pit deeper than we could crawl from. We were saved from a darkness greater than our light could penetrate. We were delivered from sin greater than our resolve could control. He saved us. Verse 5 says that this salvation is not by works done by us in righteousness. Paul's emphasizing that there's nothing that we did to earn our salvation. This is what we were singing about earlier. The song, Not In Me. There's nothing we wear, nothing we can pray, no songs that we can sing, no hands we can lift, no good deeds we can do. Nothing earns a place before God. Even if we could walk in righteousness, we cannot take any credit for God choosing to save us. No, He didn't save us because of us, but according to His own mercy. God has given us what we do not deserve. One preacher, he imagined God making a list of pros and cons in deciding whether to save us. 
So, I mean, he's, he's looking at Devin and he lines up the cons. He was foolish and he was disobedient and he was led astray and he was slave to various passions and pleasures and passing his days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And the, the list just keeps going. And then he gets to the pro side. And what is on the pro side? Should I save Devin? There's nothing on that side. There's no reason why God should save us. But then God writes across the page, my kindness, my love, my mercy. This is why we have been saved. Because of God, not because of us. According to His own mercy. 19th century British pastor Charles Spurgeon, he says, God does not come to men to help them when they are saving themselves. But He comes to rescue when they are damning themselves. When the heart is full of folly and disobedience, the good God visits it with His favor. He comes not according to the hopefulness of our character, but according to His mercy. And I love this part. And mercy has no eye except for guilt and misery. You see, if we weren't guilty and miserable, if we weren't once foolish and disobedient and led astray and all those other things, we have no need for mercy. But because that's who we are, we have great need for mercy. And that is what mercy sees. That's what mercy has an eye for. Verse 5 goes on to say that He has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is just another word for rebirth. We have been born again. Those in Christ have new life. Though we once were dead, now we are alive. How does this happen? Well, Paul is making it clear that it's not up to us. He's going above and beyond making it clear that it's not up to us. It's all of God. We are like Lazarus, lying dead in the grave. Our heart has stopped pumping. Our lungs are deflated. Our bodies, they're wasting away in the grave. But then Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he calls out to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. And the impossible happens. Brothers and sisters, the impossible happens. The lifeless body, the dead body, it hears a voice. A heart begins to beat. Blood begins to flow. Lungs fill with air. And the dead receives life. Lazarus walks out of the tomb. So it is with you. One hymn says it this way. It's Charles Wesley again. He speaks in listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. Marinate on that a little bit. He speaks in listening to his voice. As dead people, new life the dead receive. This is our story. God speaks and we live. According to his goodness, according to his kindness, according to his mercy, regeneration, new life, we are born again. We've been saved according to mercy, being given new life, and we are also saved by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Meaning we are, we are being saved from sin's power. No longer are we slaves to sin, but we are saved to righteousness. No longer does sin have dominion over us, but we are able to walk in newness of life. Not slaves, but saved. Verse 6 tells us that the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Poured out on us richly. Don't forget who we were. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God has not given us like, just enough of His mercy. 
just enough of the Spirit. No. No, God doesn't give us like a little sip here and a little sip there. He puts His generosity on display by flooding our lives with His love. By pouring out on us richly His grace through His Spirit. Notice once again that our hope, our salvation, they're still all stemming from God. It's never us. Paul already laid out who we were in verse 3. We could not save ourselves. We didn't even know we needed saving. We were deceived. We were happy to run the other way, blind to the path of destruction. But God saved us. God was good. God was kind. God gave us life and power. God has flooded our lives with his generous grace. He has given us all we need. All that we need is in him. And it can't be found anywhere else. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to his appearing. Verse 7, it goes on to say that we have been justified by his grace. Now being justified is to have right standing before God. Prior to his grace, we stood before the judge of all with the verdict of guilty pronounced over us. And now in Christ, we stand justified. We no longer have to bear the condemnation and the guilt that we deserve because Christ took it for us. Jesus took all that we deserved in his death on the cross. Jesus took what we deserved, and we get what Jesus deserved as the Son of God. Those who are in Christ have become children of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And as verse 7 says, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, an heir is someone who receives an inheritance, right? It's not because of what they've accomplished, but because of who they're connected to. God did not need us to fill up his love cup. God did not want us because he was lonely. God did not call us because of what we had to offer. God did not save us so that we could do what he couldn't do. Salvation is ours because God has made us his heirs. Because God chose us as his children. We receive an inheritance because of whose children we've become. Not because of anything we've done. And we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a lot in that phrase. As I've been studying this week, I've been like, man, I could spend the next two months just on these verses, these four verses. There's an already but not yet dynamic here. We've been justified, and we're heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our salvation is complete in Christ. We're now justified by God. But that justification, although true and sure, it's not yet fully realized. We are not yet free from the damage and power of sin. Our salvation is not yet fully realized, but one day it will be. And this is our hope, eternal life. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but eternal life, it's not just living forever. Eternal life is living forever in the presence of God. Eternal life is living in a world that is free from sin, free from sickness, free from hatred, free from gossip and slander, free from death. Eternal life is where we find full satisfaction in God. It's a life where we no longer try to hold on to the wind, where we don't get distracted by the stuff of this world that that is just meant to be a shadow pointing to a true reality of heaven. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in that which won't fade like a photograph, in that which will never be lost or can perish. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Praise God. God wants us to live as citizens of heaven. Not of earth, knowing that that's our true home. For in this life, we will face disappointment. We will face hardship and persecution. We will face trials and suffering. 
And I say we will, I could say we have. I mean, this is, this, this is life on this earth. This is what we do. This is what we go through. There are going to be moments when it feels like all is lost, when we're rejected by those who love, when we're pursued by those we hate. But our salvation, our hope, it's sure. God is its keeper. Our salvation is in His good hands. We sang earlier the song, uh, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. And the second verse, I think it is, it starts out, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. I don't remember the rest of it, but it's really good. Let me pull it up here. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley He will lead. Oh, the night has been won. And I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This world can only promise us what death can take away from us. This world can only promise us what death can take away from us. Our loved ones, they're going to eventually die. Our possessions will eventually rust or break. They'll become useless or obsolete. Our memories, they're going to eventually fade away. Death takes away all these things. But Jesus, He gives us that which death cannot touch. Jesus comes and saves us giving us the hope of eternal life, which is sure and will soon be fully realized. John Calvin, 16th century reformer, he writes that if everything went the way we wanted it to, if there was no pain, no loss, no opposition, he says this, there would be no other paradise for us. The earth would hold us fast and heaven would mean nothing to us. When, however, the Lord guides us through His world, this world in such a way that we seem contemptible and inferior to others. We are urged to look upward with the eyes of faith and to wait for what has yet to appear. So brothers and sisters, we fix our eyes on Jesus in this life and on the salvation that he has secured for us. To this we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. He's defeated sin and death. He is our shepherd and defender, and he will bring us safely home. In verse 8, uh, Paul writes this to Titus. He's saying the saying is, is trustworthy. This is, the, this is the truth that you should proclaim. You know it to be true, keep proclaiming it. And so we're going to keep pro- proclaiming this truth. We will keep proclaiming this message. This is the priority of Christian ministry. Each and every week, there are many things going on in the world, many things that would be interesting to talk about, many things that I have opinions about, many things that could draw a crowd. But God makes clear his priorities for Christian ministry. Remind the church of who they were. Remind the church of what I've done. Remind the people of what they are to do and where they're going. The ministry of Grace Church is and will always be rooted in and informed by this gospel truth. Paul says in verse 8, he says the saying is trustworthy. Insist on these things. Don't move on from the gospel. Don't move on from this truth. You can't talk about it too much. Don't be shy about it. Don't back down from it. People will say, but like, what about what's going on over here? Can't you tell us about this? Or I want to talk about this. Paul talks about this, just this thing in 2 Timothy 4, just a couple pages, one page over. He writes, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I don't know how it worked back, back then in the first century. I know how it works now. We've got podcasts, we've got blogs, and we've got hot takes and commentary. We're accumulating. 
It's easy to accumulate teachers to suit our own passions. But here at Grace Church, by God's grace, we will insist on these things. We will keep the main thing the make thing. We will keep the gospel central to all that we do. And here's the reason we'll do it. Paul gives it to us right here in verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Larry and I, we're not going to preach moralism from this pulpit. We're not going to preach that in order to measure up, you have to do X, Y, and Z. But we do, and we will, preach obedience rooted in grace from the pulpit. We will say again and again, because God has saved you, because God has called you, live then like this. We don't do this to earn grace from God, but because we have received grace, we live lives that are full of gratefulness and obedience to God. Grace leads us to obedience, to being devoted to good works. And this is just a theme that runs all the way through Paul's letter to Titus. Grace leads to good works. And these things, they're excellent and profitable for you. I'm not up here preaching this message and this obedience because it's self-serving or it's some kind of power play or anything else that you could come up with. I preach grace and obedience because it's good for you. It's good for me. It's excellent. It's profitable. There are many, many, many other things we could talk about this morning, but these are not excellent or profitable for you. So we're not going to do it. It's the gospel message, this gospel obedience that is good for you. Our response to the goodness of the gospel, it's obedience. It's not enough for us to just say we believe these things, to just talk about believing these things. We've actually got to do these things. Paul gives us specifics right here. And if you don't remember, you can look back at verse 1 and 2. Be submissive. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. Because of the grace and mercy which has been shown to us, we should show it to other people. This gospel should mark our lives. So we are going to go on preaching this gospel. We're preaching it today. You come next week, we'll preach it next week. You come in a month, we'll preach it in a month. Next year, we'll be preaching it next year. And if the Lord chooses to tarry, I'm going to be preaching this gospel till I die. He is our hope, not us. We don't earn our way before God. Because we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another and hated by others. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May we live this way. May may our lives be marked by deep gratefulness for the mercy that God has shown us. We're going to include our time by by singing singing some words that John Newton originally penned, but a couple friends of mine have have put into a, a modern hymn, and it reminds us that even though our sins are many, His mercy is so much more. It reminds us of God's character, His goodness, His kindness, His love for us. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. May we never move on from this hope. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank You for what You have done for us in Jesus Christ. Though we were once disobedient, though we were once dead in our sins, You have made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. May we sing of this grace for all our days. 
every breath that we have, may we, may we uh, express in gratitude the glory that is due only your name. Lord, may we walk in humility, recognizing who we once were. And because of that humility, may we extend grace to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.